electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Goodbye, 2022. Hello, new year. But will it be a better year for your money? We'll discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jason Snipe and right here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange, Joe Terranova and Jenny Harrington. Ticket to the markets. We'll show you what we're doing just past 12 noon in the east on this final trading day of the year. Dow's down about 200 points. S&P two-thirds, three-quarters of 1% approaching that decline there. NASDAQ down about the same amount. We always check the 10-year note yield at 388, so we'll keep our eyes there as we work on what would be the fourth worst year since 1945, Joe, the worst since 08. The good news is that the market tends to not have a, another down year after an already dismal year. For whatever that is worth. Well, I think I, I think the best news is it won't be 2022 anymore because we want to just say goodbye to it completely. But I think the beginning of the year is is where the highest probability exists for there to be a little bit of a recovery rally. I would be surprised if in the first two weeks of January you did not see a return of capital into the equity market, into the fixed income market tax loss harvesting, you'll see a return of capital from there. I think generally right now the expectation is that the CPI print on January 12th is going to be a benign one. So I think the setup is a favorable one to get a recovery rally heading into earnings. I'm not going to go beyond what happens. I mean, Edgar Denny is out with a new note today. Not necessarily looking for, you know, a huge thing in the stock market to start the year, but a favorable CPI. Inflation may be falling faster than widely expected as part of his note today. The problem, Jenny, is based on our CNBC stock survey results, people aren't looking for much next year. I mean, a third, a third say we're going to have below average returns for next year. You've got 27% of those we asked say 1% to 5% and 9% who say negative. So that gives you an idea where sentiment is, where positioning probably is. What do you make of that? Well, when you say the problem is that people aren't looking for much next year, I actually don't see that as a problem. I think it's terrific because I think one of the most important things that's happening this year is that expectations are being reset to reasonable. And if we have reasonable expectations and behave rationally, we can actually set ourselves up for a decent investment environment for the next three, five, 10 years. So we cannot lose sight of the fact that over the past 10 years, prior to 2021, the market returned 16 and percent. And everyone's so miserable about this year, like, oh, it's the worst, it's awful, I'm down 20%. Well, you know what? If you're down 20% this year, you were probably up 30% the year before, before that. You're probably up 18% the year before that. The annualized return on the market over the past three years 
is right where it should be. It's about 7%. Over the past five years, it's about 9%. And I think that if we collectively as investors have rational expectations and behave rationally, we will make the returns that will get us to functional places in our retirement. So when, when the expectations for next year are not much, what is that, 6 7 8%? Sure, the market historically returned 8 to 10 but 6 7 8% next year after a year like this, to me, that's just fine. The, the question is, Jason, do, do we have the capability of, of even doing that, given all that we know that what we think lies ahead? Yeah, I think it's an important question to ask. And I think Jenny makes a great point in just, you know, what the last three years have been. And, you know, this is the first negative year in the, in the, in the last four, right? So when I, when I look to turning the calendar, which I know we're all excited to do that for 2023, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously the Fed. You know, we're closer to the end of this tightening cycle. I mean, 400 plus basis points in one year. Uh, these are historic numbers. We might see another 50 to 75. And as we've been talking about all year and, and the Fed has, has, has talked about in their commentary, is then, and then they'll likely hold. Right. Um, and I think some of the concern as well is what are the lag effects of all uh, that has happened already this year with, with labor, uh, with owner equivalents, rents, housing, all, all these things will, will take shape in, in 2023. But I think once we can get beyond that, uh, there, there is some opportunity. And I think the market, you know, again, 20 plus percent, you know, in the S&P, 30, 30 plus percent in the NASDAQ, you know, his, history has told us that uh, we don't see a lot of uh, year, negative years, two years in a row. So I think those also can play well going into the new year. And, and let's see, you know, how the, how the next quarters, uh, couple quarters and, and what present itself here. Undoubtedly, Joe, the biggest question is going to be around earnings and what the right multiple is for stocks with a recession lurking. If you look at what happened in the market this year, so at the beginning of the year, the S&P uh, had a forward P.E. of 21 and a half. OK, it's down to 16.7. Uh, the Dow was at 19. Now it's you know north of 16. Uh, Nasdaq was just 32. Yeah. It's down to 22 and a half. Now, maybe that's the biggest point of contention is that 22 times and, and whether the, the Nasdaq has had a re-rating enough. And some would suggest that it has not. And maybe that's the most open-ended question while we've seen, you know, obviously the market come in from a, a more dramatic perspective from technology and the NASDAQ. If you remove the valuation for mega caps, the valuation for the S&P is lower. Way lower. Way lower. So I've said all along, it began in December of 2020, the Russell 1000 hyper growth index had a PE at that time in the mid 40s. The PE on that index now is below 20. This has been a valuation recession for risk assets and for equities. And it's, it's touching the last place. The last line of defense was the mega cap equities. So when you ask the question, when I look at the 2023, what is the right valuation going to be for, in particular, NASDAQ well, stocks? For anything, I mean, for anything. And the problem with the, the issue is you, you can't answer it yet. You just don't know because we really don't know what earnings are going to be if there's going to be a recession I, and how much of a re-rating across the whole market has to take place, not even getting to tech yet. I, th I think that's fair, but I think, Scott, you could assign a good degree of volatility to the, the, the type, the equity size class 
the NASDAQ, the S&P, the blue chip stocks. I think the volatility remains high. You still have the suspicion that there has to be more valuation contraction in a lot of the growth and the hyper growth stocks that are represented in the NASDAQ. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind. And that's why from the risk management perspective, you're still more inclined right now to look away from those names until a better environment presents itself. So, Jenny, earnings are the biggest question. According to our survey, mm -hmm. the biggest concern, in which, by the way, all of you participated yep. in, in this survey, is the Fed. Overwhelmingly so. 73% say the Fed is the biggest market concern right now. Next is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and that's at 12%. So it's 73% by a mile. The Fed is and will continue to be pretty much the whole game. It okay. is, 73%. I mean, you can figure out a, you know, wrap yourself like a pretzel trying to, you know, give me some other answer here, but. I know, I know, and this is where. This well, I, see, this where is... I see where you're going. I see the, the <laughs> I wheels you. are turning as I, was, as I was saying that, as if you were in disagreement, but. Well, How could I you think, be in any disagreement that the Fed is the whole game in town for stocks right now? Well, it's not for me. And, and, and so when I see that survey and I see 73% of people who I have huge respect for, they're all worried about the Fed. I'm like, what are you worried well, about? Well, what'd you answer? You answered the question. What'd you answer? I think I was. if there was an other, I put other, or I might have did, done China and Taiwan. And it's funny because I didn't remember exactly what I did because all of those to me are highly anticipated, right? Now, China, Taiwan, that's really scary. I'd put incredibly low odds on that. But if that happens, like that would scare the bejesus out of me. And then I think we have a real problem. But it's the lowest odds of, of what's on the list. With respect to the Fed, like who doesn't already know what's going to happen next year? Everybody. Everybody How knows. That? How about that? Everybody, everybody. doesn't know? Everybody. I'm going to say everybody does know. With the Fed? With the Fed, you don't think so? Disagree. They're pulling $95 billion out a month. They're going to raise they three more. they done that this year? They yeah. haven't. They have. They have They've not. decreased the balance sheet by $95 billion a month. They have not. They're going to continue to do that for the next four and a half years. That's what they've said they're going to do. They're going to raise by 25 basis points. We know, we don't, we know that we're in a tighter environment. We know that Fed funds is probably going to end up in the three and a half to four and a half percent range. Like these are all things to me that are known. So I was actually really surprised. Three and a half to four? You mean four and a half to five, if not higher? Okay, I'm going to guess that it settles out a little bit lower in the long run, but you're right. Right now, is that that's where the dot. But that's what I'm right. saying. We, we, we just don't know. We collectively <laughs> we don't, know. don't know what exactly they're going to do and for how long it's they're really so... going to do it or for how long they leave it to where the peak ultimately gets to. Then that's maybe, a problem, too. Maybe this is the way I see it, which is it's so directionally. Maybe we don't know the, the exact, but to me, it's so directionally predictable. I hear you. I'm just saying, like, to me, the Fed isn't what I worry about the most next year. What I worry about the most next year in a realistic way is earnings coming up much shorter and much worse than what we're really expecting. I'm worried. I'm worried. And, and, sorry, and I worry about people freaking out about valuation because right now the only way you get back to 4100 on the S&P, which is up, what, 6.5%, 7% from here, the only way you get there is $230 earnings 18 times. I don't want to pay 18 times for the market. You know, and this was the conversation you and I were having last week is the demand side of the equation. What are people willing to pay? What if people say, hey, I don't want to pay that anymore because I don't feel great and there's not that much liquidity. I only want to pay 16 I times. think part of our issue, though, so, is, is before you can say that, <laughs> you, you just you don't really have the answers of to how to even formulate what you think is a fair valuation that's right. for the market, Joe. So I, I think about the forecast for 23. I think about the risk. I think one risk that resides itself, and I, and I would include myself in this, is that consensus is so defensively positioned, they are so pessimistic 
that the actual risk that they're incurring is they're not invested in the type of way that they should be if everything falls into place. Conversely, though, the concern with the Federal Reserve for me resides itself in the balance sheet. And you don't know the answer to what they are going to do, what the path is going to be there, because they are behind. They're 30 percent behind in their intended target for the balance sheet. They have not been able to roll off the amount of securities that they told us they were going to. Let's not forget the makeup of the they changes a bit in terms of votes. And who doesn't? Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us now with more on that. Right, Steve? It's not just who does what. It's, you know, in part of who the who is. I don't know, Scott. What do you need me for? You guys got it all figured out there. I'm, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we wish. We don't. That's it's why we're It's kind of interesting. <laughs> no, I know. It's, um, you know, I think the personnel issue is interesting. It's a little unclear to me. Where it all lays out, we have Lori Logan coming on from the Dallas, uh, from the New York Fed, who ran the open market desk there to the Dallas Fed. I, I think she's going to be a person more concerned about systemic risk um, in the in the banking system and in the financial system in general. Uh, it, it's why I think that I, I think the Fed ought to do a little bit less than it's advertising because of that. Because I think rolling off the balance sheet is probably the most important. I got a chart on that, guys, in the back. Look at the balance sheet. Um, and, and we talk a lot about rates, and you guys are talking about rates. Not that chart, guys. If you would go to the one that says balance sheet, it would be great. Um, and you'll see it there. Not that one either. It's the next one. <laughs> one I'm going for it. Thank you very much. D- you don't have it. Okay, never mind. There's a balance I'm being sheet told. chart. We'll just have to trust I'm sorry, you on that's, this, Steve. It's probably my fault. All right, then I'm going to call up the numbers. And the numbers are that okay. you're going to go down from... Uh, where are we starting the year? We're starting the year at uh, we should at eight and a half trillion down from eight nine. Joe's right; they didn't do as much as advertised. They should get down to seven point four trillion. A trillion here, a trillion there. Pretty soon, it starts to add up. At some point, the uh, roll off of the balance sheet is going to be binding. It's going to start to have an effect on the market. And I and, and I'll tell you one of the things that you guys say you don't know what the Fed's going to do. Let me guarantee you, I don't think the Fed knows what it's going to do. And while you say the Fed is a, is a source of volatility and uncertainty, I think that volatility and uncertainty flows directly from the outlook for the economy. And we just don't know what inflation is going to do. There's some optimistic outlooks out there, um, and we don't know uh, what inflation is going to do. And those are really the unknowns. I will show you, if we go back now to the other charts, guys, um, what the uh, uh, rate outlook is. And there's two things to watch here. The first is this idea that there's this 5% peak funds rate in June. And then you see the Jenny Harrington idea, I guess that the Fed kind of rolls off a bit of it. Now, let's go to where the fun begins next year, Scotty, which is in May. And now I'll show you the distribution right now of the outlook for May. Now this could be like, you know, 7% of the folks think that, there we go, think that they're gonna cut 25 in May. Uh, what is it, uh, 40% or so, think they're going to remain at that 490 or 488 rate. And then, you know, uh, 41% think they're going to uh, uh, hike. And then it, by 25 and 12%, they go by 50. This is where the possibilities start to fan out and, and the band becomes wider of unknown. And then you can kind of project that forward. If they start cutting, do they keep cutting? Uh, do they just maintain this level? 
And it's all going to depend upon what do we get? Three or four more inflation reports between now and then, three or four more unemployment reports. But pretty steady through the first quarter, I think, is the outlook in terms of the Fed. So Jenny, I think, has that part right. I think the other part, though, what happens beyond May and into June, that's where it gets to be unknown. And it's going to be entirely dependent upon the unknown inflation and uh, growth outlooks and unemployment outlooks. Do you think, Steve, that, I mean, obviously, we don't have another Fed meeting until early February. Are we, are we leaning at this point towards 25 over 50, or does it really yeah. hinge? Yeah. Uh, it, so it doesn't so much hinge. I mean, obviously, I guess to some degree it, it always will on the CPI, which yeah. gets released on January 12th. I'd build in that 25, Scott, for, for, for February, and I'd build in the 25 for March. I think that's pretty good odds right there. I got 60-plus percent in the market. I think they, they want to get up towards 5 percent and let it sit there for a bit. Um, what, what I don't want them to do, Scott, what I worry about is that they go too far on the funds rate and don't let the balance sheet have an effect. Esther George from Kansas City, the retiring Kansas City pre Fed president, had this idea, don't endanger the balance sheet runoff. I've got a lot of reasons why I think this balance sheet wants to, need, needs to run off. Get the Fed out of the mortgage business, create some uh, capacity in the balance sheet, uh, uh, and also get the Fed as much as possible out of the market uh, so that the market is able to do its own thing. So I think there are reasons for the Fed to get out of the, uh, uh, the balance sheet business and bring down the amount there. And I don't want to see that endangered by raising rates. I also think that, Scott, as there's, there's two things happening. The balance sheet's going to start to bite the economy. And it's also important to remember, the Fed is now getting help from Europe and from Japan that it wasn't getting before. And I think that'll also have an effect. It's also pushing up U.S. yields as well. Steve, your insights have helped us greatly this year. I'm so appreciative of your time. I look forward to many more appearances from you on this program in the new year. You be well, all right? Super kind of you, Scott, and really uh, it's an honor to be on uh, with the great people you have on this show and with you, Scott. Have a great new year. Uh, nice to say that. We appreciate it so much, Steve. Thank you. That's Steve Leesman. Let's, let's um, pivot back before we go to this idea of, okay, given what Steve said, given of, you know, where all you believe that we, we may be. And Jason Snipe, I'll turn to you. Um, this idea of value over growth, the market seems to be voting, right? It's, it seems clear at this moment. It's also seemed clear at other moments that haven't really had the staying power that some have thought. Uh, will it be different this time? Absolutely. And, I, and I, you know, I guess what I think about value, the value versus growth debate, I mean, obviously, you know, in, in recent in recent past, you know, value has not the staying power hasn't been there and growth has obviously superseded that. But, you know, what I will say, we've been in a low interest rate environment, virtually no interest rate environment for almost a decade now. So when I when I think about value going forward and earnings and and, you know, profitable stocks that are, that are obviously producing earnings today, you know, I, I'd like value going forward. And also with the Fed, to Steve's point, with with a Fed that is more engaged and, and higher for longer, I think value can continue to continue to work here. And, and I think growth uh, will likely take a backseat going into 23. So that that's pretty much where I stand here, just in that in that critical debate, which I think is important to have. Joe, it's going to be a rough year. I I just can't imagine how it's going to be a, a really positive or successful year for stocks if the mega caps have another terrible year. Some would suggest, well, the market's not so reliant on them like, like people think. 
It just well, seems hard to believe that you could have a good year in the market if you're going to have a bad year again in mega cap tech. Well, I, th I think you have to quantify a, a, a bad year. I mean, 2022, I would say, was an abysmal year for a lot of these mega cap names. Well, so most have had the worst year for them since 08. You know, statistically down beyond the S&P, uh, in, in some cases down like Amazon, almost nearly double. So is a, is a bad year where the mega caps maybe underperform the overall market by maybe 5% or so? Well, let me ask you this. What if the mega okay. caps are flat? for 2023. What if they, you know, they rebound, mm -hmm. but they're flat? I think the market could be okay in that situation. I agree. As long as you pick up, Jenny, a lot of slack from other areas, some That's cyclicals, exactly. which, you know, there's a fair amount of focus on right now as being a place that, that you may want to be. Right. One of the things that I was just scrambling to pull up was the valuation disparities. And it's interesting because growth stocks are still trading at 20 times earnings. This is a smidge stale, but roughly accurate. <laughs> and maybe like a month stale. So um, their historical multiple was 18.6 times. Value, on the other hand, is trading at 12 times. It's still below their historical multiple. So what we can see, Scott, is more of that re-rating that we've been talking about all week. And so I think the the mega cap growth stocks, they can re-rate simply by plateauing and letting their earnings grow like five, six percent. Meanwhile, you've got this whole like 450 stocks in the S&P 500 that are trading at really low valuations. And as those re-rate, many of those are going to move from that like closer to 12 times multiple, maybe back to their 13 times, maybe 14 times. And so we see a mean reversion. And I think this is going to be the year. But things have where, to work well, though, for that. Right. I mean, you can't have a recession and have valuations and the multiples of those uh, more sensitive stocks to the economy go well, up. Well, this it's is where we're going to argue again on how much of the idea of a recession is already priced in. Because to Joe's point, it wasn't a bad year. It was an abysmal year for many of these stocks. I mean, literally, Amazon down 50%. No, I'm talking Apple. about I'm talking about like the industrials and more cyclical stocks, okay. the kinds that you're actually talking about that you know can have an increase in their their multiple. Yes, but many of those are down also 30, 40, 50 percent this year and what they've done is they've already anticipated and this is where we go to the you know if we have a recession it'll be the most widely anticipated highly advertised blah 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 recession that anyone's ever had so the share prices have i think in many many cases overshot the idea of a terrible recession coming and so i think they actually can have multiple expansion and buoy us up all right let's give you a programming note for more on the economy in 2023 tune in tonight six o'clock eastern for a cnbc special report taking stock it's hosted by Brian Sullivan. Coming up, the investment committee is making some moves in the market as well. Jenny Harrington has a new stock buy to tell you about. Jason Snipe has two stock sells to tell you about. They will next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're back, and we have some moves to tell you about from the committee today. Jenny Harrington has a new buy, Advance Auto Parts. When did you buy it? Yesterday. Okay. <laughs> tell me why. Okay. So this is kind of exactly what we were just talking about. The stock is down 40% year-to-date. In 2021, they started a new program where they're returning huge amounts of cash to shareholders, and they jacked the dividend up. So right now, you've got a 4.1% yield, trades at 11.6 times. It's two peers, AutoZone and O'Reilly, which are better managed and historically always have been. They trade at 20 and 26 times earnings. So you've got AutoZone, which is... You might think this is a silly thing to say, but it's very real, and you can look at the earnings and the revenues going way, way, way back on this. They have a huge amount of economic resilience because in a tough economy, you might put off buying a car, but you cannot put off fixing up the car that you've got. And so even even with the argument of electrification of vehicles, you know, they, there's still huge demand for auto parts. There will be for a long time. And so you've got economic resilience. I think you've got a stable consumer. This is not saying a super strong consumer. And you've got a business that's trading dirt cheap. Historically, they've traded in the 16 to 18 times range. So this is one where I think it overshot the worst case expectations. By the way, earnings for next year, um, analysts are expecting little growth over this year. It's at $12.5 of earnings this year with a $6 dividend. We think that the analysts are being overly optimistic. So let's say earnings stay flat, or even if they're down a little bit, when a stock's trading at 11.5 times earnings, you have a huge margin of safety. So it's not a glossy story. It's just really solid, better than a bond. I think the right kind of thing to own to actually make money in a tricky year like 2020. And the dividend right? yield is? 4.1%. 4.1%. <laughs> free cash flow yield 11%. I mean, you did mention AutoZone, the performance has been striking in terms of the outperformance of AutoZone this year. Oh, yeah. Plus 17 versus down 40. Right. Right, right. I mean, this is, there's always been pressure on, on advanced auto parts because it is a constant kind of like integration, merger, you know, messy story. One of the things that was interesting, and anyone who might want to buy it, I do advise you to watch the analyst day that they have recorded from April of this year. One of the things they talked about is that their systems were like 21 years old. And just that systems integration has taken years and years and years longer. So they have a huge discount. The stock's got no love, but it's kind of just fine. All right, well, it's getting some love uh, right now as, as, we're, as we speak. Uh, Jason Snipe, you have a couple of moves, too, that'll be, I think, interesting to our viewers, and they're sells. Uh, Twilio. You Got sold it. Twilio and you sold Shopify. Can you take me through those, please? Start with Twilio I, for us. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So Twilio, both Twilio and Shopify, as, as, as Joe and a lot of the panelists have described all year, you know, price of sales stocks, you know, highly... Uh, very high beta names uh, with, with no profits, right? So these are names that, that have been tough. So I right-sized Twilio, you know, early on this year in February. Um, very innovative communications platform, but the guide in the last quarter is really difficult, you know, in terms of long-term organic growth slowing in 2023. So we decided to unload it actually yesterday. 
And then on, on Shopify's side, I think, you know, the thinking about cyclicals and thinking about the retail, I mean, they're, they're be very sensitive to retail sales going forward. They had a very strong, you know, holiday uh, weekend, you know, Cyber Monday was really strong for them, record numbers, you know, but for me, as we go forward into potentially a slowdown and, and sensitivity to retail sales, we felt that it was time to unload the rest of our position. And again, they were micro positions for us at this stage, but they're, they're, they're names that I feel are very innovative, um, have a long growth period ahead, but we'll probably relook at them sometime in the summer of next year. Okay. Uh, Twilio was a Joe Terranova name sure at, at one, uh, one point. And I can't remember, to be honest, if it was in 21 or 22. Oh, no, it was well beyond that. We're, we're talking about early 2019. Okay. Oh, good old days. Those, when did you finally get rid of it? <laughs> Uh, I got rid of Twilio kind of going into the pandemic, bought it again on the other side and quickly scrambled out of it. I did well with Twilio, one of the few stocks I've done well with in the last five years. Uh, but it, it's a great company. And the only thing that comes to mind when I think of Twilio is I say to myself, here's a company that, that we know the business model is, is one that's additive for a technology company. Is it now cheap enough, Scott? I think this is where you know the market begins to bottom. If we begin to see some M&A in technology itself, that's when you can feel comfortable that you're at a bottom. And this company, it wouldn't take very much. It's got a market cap of $8.9 billion. You tell me, I don't know, $12 billion, $13 billion to buy the company? That's a pretty additive company for a large cap technology company that's trying to uh, add some growth. You know what's interesting about that, Joe, is I was thinking, and I don't think this is not part of my investment thesis, but it was actually similar with the advanced auto, where, where I'm thinking this is a huge free cash flow company. And what are the private equity guys going to look for? They're going to look for certainty, free cash flow. The market cap is $8 billion. Now, again, that's not the investment thesis, but when you start to think of these things from a private market value perspective, you can see a lot of value in them. Well, speaking of picks, next week on Halftime, we're going to kick off our annual stock summit. We'll debate the stocks and sectors the committee has the most conviction in for 2023. So don't miss that. It's going to be throughout uh, next week. We look forward to that. Coming up, our chart of the day. It's a big energy stock having its best year on record, surging more than 100 percent. Tell you how to play energy just ahead on Halftime. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. NBC News has learned an arrest has been made in connection with last month's brutal killing of four Idaho college students. Brian Christopher Koberger was taken into custody in Pennsylvania, more than 2,500 miles away from the crime. Police in Moscow, Idaho, said they would provide more information at a news conference later today. It's scheduled for 4 p.m. Eastern time. They did not confirm that arrest. Cambodian authorities are continuing their search today for victims from a massive fire earlier this week. The death toll at a casino and hotel complex is now 25, but authorities worry that number will grow. An initial investigation found the fire may have been caused by faulty holiday decorations using too much electricity. 
President Biden announced six new pardons today, including former members of the military. None of the individuals currently are serving a sentence. And the White House said Biden is committed to providing second chances to those who've demonstrated their rehabilitation. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Contessa, thank you, Contessa Brewer. Let's get to our chart of the day now. It's Occidental Petroleum. Shares up 115% this year, having their best year on record. It is the top performing stock in the S&P 500 this year. It has the Berkshire Hathaway seal of approval. I could go on and on and on. I could also say that the Joe T holds Occidental, so you've done well with that. Heavy short interest in Occidental. Let's keep that in mind. That's been unwound significantly. Uh, we're, we're closing out a year in which energy equities are up well over 50 percent, significantly outpacing the spot commodity itself. I think oil is basically up somewhere around five or six percent for the year. Natural gas is up somewhere around 20 percent. So it's really been about these energy companies having the discipline uh, from a management perspective and really focusing on how it is exactly they can improve the balance sheet, return capital to shareholders in an environment where they've also benefited from an early price spike at the beginning of the year. Stock survey, which area will you be concentrating on to start 2023? 41% say energy stocks that led the way. Do we, Jenny, who also has exposure uh, significantly in this space, think that energy stocks are gonna continue that leadership role into the new year? Leadership, but not at the same pace. Right. I, I mean, these are crazy numbers that we've seen. Do we think that they're going to lead by 50 plus? Well, actually, if you think about it, they're 70 percent ahead of the market. Do I think energy stocks are going to be 70 percent ahead of the broader market next year? No way on earth. <laughs> now, I'll be happy if I'm wrong on that strong statement. But no, I think that they have largely re-rated already. And, and, you know, that's, Joe says, you know, it's the cash flow and it's the um, capital discipline, and that's all true. But mostly it's just people saying, hey, these are really high quality, well-run companies. They produce a lot of cash flow. I have certainty of earnings ahead, and that's what I want for this kind of environment. So they took them from two and three times earnings multiples to six, seven, eight times earnings multiples. I don't think those multiples go into the teens next year. Maybe they go to eight, nine, ten times. Let me ask so, you this, Joe. <laughs> if you're, well, I'll ask both of you. I'll ask both of you for the answer because the answers may be different. You're you're both sitting on Chevron, okay? Chevron year-to-date is up 52%. Now, if you had, you have Exxon? Yeah, Joe, you have Exxon. Yes, sir. Exxon was up almost 80%. Why not sell those? If you had that, you're up 80% this year. Why not sell that? Because the environment, the supply-to-demand environment is, is still demanding that investors maintain positioning there, okay? and allow the environment to tell you when to get out. What do I mean when I say the environment? Number one, supply relative to surging demand, and number two, earnings. I need to see the deterioration in earnings for me to become an active seller of the energy names. I'm gonna use a quick analogy if I could, okay? What's up the last five years, every year, farm commodities, whether it's corn, whether it's soybean, whether it's wheat, and they all have exactly what I'm speaking towards, the right supply, demand, and balance that tells you to invest there, and also the earnings growth. So using that analogy, okay, I could say to myself, well, it's happened for farm commodities, we could have that type of multi-year run for energy equities. Can I tell you exactly what I've done? 
So yeah. I actually did sell Chevron for my accounts where they don't have a big capital gain. Now, I've owned Chevron for so long that I have huge capital gains. I have huge capital gains that I'm dealing with this year, and I've tried to offset them. So for the non-taxable accounts, I sold Chevron. At the time, it was about a 4% position, and I replaced it with about a 2.5% position in Pioneer. So I see, and this is, again, I manage a dividend income strategy. So I significantly increased the dividend that I was getting by that trade. As soon as we turn the calendar corner, then I'll sell Chevron for the rest of the taxable accounts that own it. And again, take 4% energy off the table, put 2.5% back in, increase the dividend yield, put a percent and a half in my pocket, and to me, that's good portfolio management. Okay, interesting. Jason Snipe, you have Chevron too. I do, and you know, I still remain overweight, you know, on the company and and the and the whole sector as as a whole. I just think everything that Joe and Jenny said. I mean, we always talk about the supply demand dynamics, and that's that's true. But I think when I when I really focus on energy, it's about the earnings power. It's all about the fundamentals. I mean, free cash flow, dividend yields, very strong balance sheets. I think energy can still do well. And to Jenny's point, I don't think that the outsized returns you'll see this year that we saw this year we'll see next year but i still think it'll be a relative strength uh sector you know in 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 the overall market okay all right coming up next one of our new segments in 2022 grade your trade we're going to do it next you can keep sending them in you can find us on twitter you can email us ask halftime at cnbc.com we are right back all right let's grade some trades now Jason Snipe, you got the first one. It's from Chris C. It says, a few weeks ago, I bought 300 shares of Amazon at $89. The RSI was at 29, so I went for it. I'm holding for now, given the dip in price. My time horizon is to hold for 10 years. It's a long time. What do you think of this trade? Yeah, so I, I would give it a B here. I think, you know, obviously an RSI below 30 is reflective of oversold conditions. So. For me, Amazon has been a disappointment for almost two years now, right? So the stock is down 50% year to date. There's been a deceleration, you know, in AWS advertising and a shift from uh, goods to services. But, it, you know, with a 10-year time horizon, I could almost guarantee, you know, 10 years from now, Amazon won't be where it is today. So they're a very innovative company. I think the advertising business will continue to grow. I think cloud is, we're still in the early stages of that development. AWS will do well. So I like this trade here, and I, and I recommend holding it, especially over a long-term horizon. All right. All right. Uh, Joe, for you, from uh, one of our viewers, Rita, I sold Cadence Design yesterday mm. at 162.50. It's in the Joe T. It is. So we'll have you grade it. What's your grade? I'm going to give Rita an A on this. And obviously, Rita pays attention to technicals. There was a significant technical breakdown yesterday. Keep in mind, the stock was as high as 194 back in August, but yesterday it breached below all of its major moving averages. Fundamentally, you do also have the wild card. That's the exposure to China. 13% of its revenue comes from there. So, Rita, nice job. That's an A. All right, good stuff. Well done, Rita. Uh, Jenny, get the last one. Bob V in Virginia Beach. I'm a retired stockbroker. I bought Uber at 47, 34, and then at 29. What do I do now? Uh, I thought he was going to say, what do I get on that trade? Well, so, you give that sorry, grade first and then I, give the advice. All right. So here, I averaged it out. I figure you probably paid 36 on average, which makes you down 46%, which is double the market. So sadly, you get a D. But 
We bought Uber a couple dollars ago. I actually think there's tremendous upside from here. They've got 15 to 20% revenues growth, revenue growth ahead. They're going to start to make tons of free cash in the next couple of years. I think they're going to make two and a half, 2.2 billion in 23. They're going to crack 4 billion in 24. So from here, I think there's a lot of upside. And I think what you should do is unless your position size is already enormous, I would add to it here. I think it's a great stock to own. So what was a D can be turned around with a little extra yes. extra work, a little extra credit. You're a tough grader. I am. I am. That was a really bad trade, though. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, got it. you know what? I appreciate the fact that you keep it real. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break. <laughs> keep your trades coming in, by the way. Send an email to AskHalfTime at CNBC.com. You can tweet us. Use the hashtag GradeMyTrade. All right. Coming up, Mike Santoli has his midday word. We're back after this. We're back on the Halftime Report. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us right here post nine for his midday word. I, I mean, my midday word would be good riddance, not to you, but <laughs> yeah. to the year. What, no, what would enough. yours be? No, it's been, uh, it's been kind of a grind. I mean, even if it hasn't been uh, straight down, we were just saying it's been range bound since May. Uh, I think it's, it's tempting to kind of dismiss the, the holiday week. And, you know, we can't really say that there's a quorum out there telling us what's happening. A couple things to keep an eye on. One is that bond yields are not going quietly. Um, you're seeing a little bit of an upswing in, uh, in Treasury yields. See the 30-year threatening 4%. They're well below the highs. It doesn't look like it's really, um, you know, a stress level uh, for, for equities yet. But keep an eye on it as we try to figure out what inflation expectations are. And wholesale gasoline prices bouncing. So all these things that we feel like we've kind of been able to shove to the side and say, okay, been there. Mm-hmm. We figured that out. You have to figure they're going to be somewhat factors next year, even if I think you know, valuations are in a better spot, even if they're not great. And, uh, and, and we have, we're benefiting from a low hurdle of diminished expectations. It seems like uh, yields went up a little bit, stocks went down a little bit on yeah. the Chicago number. Yeah. Uh, a little hotter than expected, just raises that good news uh, for the economy is bad news for the market environment with the Fed. And also perhaps suggests that we continue to over-anticipate the real breakdown in the economy when it's not really there across the board. I mean, housing's in the tank. I mean, we can point to all these things that say worse is coming, but the data are not quite there, at least in a, in a wholesale way. All right. I'll see you in a few. Yeah. For your real so last soon. word. That's right. Uh, for 2022. That's Mike Santoli. All right. Semi-stocks on pace for their worst year since 08. One big player in the group getting a big downgrade today. We'll discuss that next in our call of the day. All right. Welcome back. Our call of the day is Micron, the largest U.S. memory stock downgraded to hold today from buy at Argus. They note the challenging environment. No big shock there. They say the cut reflects prospects for deep operating losses at that company over the next few quarters. Nobody on the, on the desk owns it, but let's do it this way, Joe. Is this a take this ticker symbol and substitute almost any in the chip space right now, given what is an expected, quote unquote, challenging environment for many I'll just steal from, you know, their words from this note. But how about that? I think it's correct to say it's a challenging environment, but no. I think that first in, first out is the case for the semis. I think the semis, without question, were the first to experience the valuation contraction and the valuation recession. I think there are places within the semis where you have seen the bottom. KLA Corp, on semi, microchip. Texas Instruments, which I own personally. So I do believe that you can find tactically opportunities in the semi-space. And yes, I acknowledge the overall environment 
still remains a challenged one. Worst performing Dow stock this year, I Jenny. Knew it. You know what that one is? <laughs> I, knew I mean, you were it is what it is. I, I didn't just pull this out because I, I wanted to, you know, bring it up on purpose. But it's Intel, <laughs> right? So again, it just it, is. it just goes to my, you know, take the ticker of of Micron out. Can you sub almost any in the group in and think that, let's say, for the next, you know, handful of months, it's going to yeah. be challenging? I, I don't think you should do that. I think you really should you know, be a real investor on these and say, my starting place is today. Let's look at each one of its own individual, on its own individual merits. And, wh and what does it have going for it from here? What's the valuation? What are the earnings opportunities? You know, and I know we sold, we sold AMAT, when was that, like a month and a half ago? And the idea there was, we didn't think that there was earnings growth ahead, and it was trading at its historical multiple. So we didn't see either earnings growth or multiple expansion, but we still own Teradyne. Teradyne has 43% earnings expected growth in 2024. That's really promising. And while it's more expensive than others, they're all different, so I think you, you can't you can't lump them all together. I think you're doing yourself a disservice. So like even on Intel, look at it today and say, hey, what earnings, what might earnings actually be? It's different than, than NVIDIA, it's different than Micron. Well, let's talk about NVIDIA because that's okay. where I want to go with, with you, Jason. Maybe no uh, chip name is in the crosshairs or you know under as much pressure than NVIDIA for where it once was, where it is now, and the belief that people still have in it. There's no doubt about it, Scott. I mean, obviously, all the chips, you know, the SMH is down 34%. NVIDIA has had some challenges with the chip. You know, uh, you know some of the chips that they could send to China, obviously, the multiple is high. You know, this, NVIDIA is a long-term holding for us. I mean, gaming data center is obviously all slowed. I mean, this name has, has done great over the last decade, but it has been challenged recently. And even, I don't own Micron, but, you know, when I think about inventory, inventory has been the issue. Uh, you know, with the, with the semis. And Steph has always talked about this, the double ordering that they've experienced throughout yeah. the year is now coming to roost, and that's been the problem. Yeah, you go from a shortage to a glut, and that's going to be an issue that we're going to be talking a lot about as we go into 23. We'll take a quick break. We'll do final trades next. All right, we're going out with a bang tonight in overtime. Why? Because Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School will be with us to sum up this year and more importantly what he thinks lies ahead for your money in 2023. He's been with us almost every step of the way through a turbulent year. Cannot wait to catch up with him as we close it out. Let's do final trades. Jason Snipe, what do you have for us? I like Avantor here. It's a chemical company that provides medical equipment to, to healthcare companies. It's got a 6% free cash flow yield, and it also trades about 15 times earnings. So I like it here with the tailwinds in, in healthcare that we see going forward. All right, good stuff. Happy New Year to you, and great having you part of the team this year. Same Jason. to you. We'll see you soon. Jenny Harrington. Okay. Coal stores, down 40% on the year, 8% dividend yield, $4 of earnings, $2 dividend. As Mike Santoli said earlier, this is a stock that he said over-anticipated the economic breakdown. All right. And finally, feels, feels so good to give a final trade in 2022. I'll go <laughs> out sure. saying Charles Schwab, and most importantly, <laughs> be long health and happiness in 2023 yeah. for all viewers. Yeah, for real. And Happy New Year to you guys. Happy, happy New Jenny Year Jenny and too. Joe and your families, of course, Same as well. You. All of you, too. Uh, we look forward to spending 2023 with all of you. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key.
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.